Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday, March 21st. Another busy show ahead. We are starting, though, with a look at the Broadway corridor and specifically the number of four lease signs in that part of the city of Vancouver. And Neil Wiles is joining us, the executive director of the Mount Pleasant Business Improvement Association. Neil, thank you so much for taking some time. My pleasure. This is something I know that your organization has been looking at, and you talked about the number of for lease signs and how it's gone up in January. The Business Improvement Association counted about 40 of those signs. They are are now counting at about 56. Uh, That seems like a lot of places that are empty and or for lease at at the moment. Exactly. Um, And these businesses just have quietly disappeared. Um, it was something I noticed as I traveled the line uh, from end to end, and, uh, and, and I put it out there because uh, 16 businesses in probably that many weeks is a shocking number. And can you tell us exactly what area, I, I should have mentioned this off the top, because Mount Pleasant is a, a big area if, we, if we're looking kind of at Mount Pleasant East and West and with the, the Broadway corridor. What part of the corridor are you talking about? Arbutus to Maine, the Maine the main part of, of what is the Broadway line. And do you get a sense or have you heard from business owners and uh, business uh, businesses as to why they are kind of quietly shutting down? They just can't afford it. I mean, costs are increasing uh, all over. Um, it's hard to get to these businesses. There's no parking. There's no stopping. Um, and for many of them, there's no support uh, from any level of government. But I think that um, in this case, all roads lead to the province. And so when you put this out on social media, and that was one of one of the questions or the question in this, the latest uh, point about the businesses, the four lease signs, uh, the question was, when will the province help? What would you like to see the province do? Well, the province has a longstanding policy of uh, no financial compensation for short-term business interruptions. Um, A, this is a five to six year project. Uh, so it's hard to say that it's short term. And B, uh, the province has the pleasure of writing its own policy. So it gets to adhere to its own policy. Um, I think that at some point, they need to do something uh, for these folks, whether it's uh, tax relief, uh, which the province was able to figure out during COVID. Um, or, you know, if they don't want to do uh, direct financial compensation. But they need to help these folks because it is the province who is literally blocking access to these businesses. Um, There's some businesses it's just very, very difficult to get to. And as a consumer, how many times will you be inconvenienced? I mean, you want to support these businesses, but you haven't got all day to be driving around and around and around trying to get to them. And and that's certainly one of the points that's been raised about this as well. And especially, I think, if we're looking at the evenings or large portions of the Broadway corridor, and I think people will understand it is a huge project. There are going to be road closures. You can't have parking in all of the places where crews are working. But there are large sections of the corridor where there are the, the red covers on the parking meters that say no stopping anytime. But there is plenty of room and there aren't crews actively there. Could there even be uh, changes made to that in that allow parking, even if it's in the evenings or allow people to park at certain times so they are able to access those businesses? 
Well, Broadway was a busy street before the Broadway line construction, and it had those rush hour regulations on it. Those have been on there for ages. Um, At this point, uh, the city of Vancouver did a traffic study about volumes, um, and it indicated a couple of blocks uh, between Maine and Canby that could certainly uh, have parking restored. Uh, And it's a year later, and I think TransLink would like to have more study. I mean, would you like to just keep studying this until these businesses are gone and then you don't need to do anything? Um, You're exactly right. Just remove some of the red hoods. I get it. Some of the construction needs are there. Um, But there's a couple of blocks in an eight-block stretch that you could see parking uh, return to. And hopefully these businesses would see a nice little increase that would help them survive. Uh, is that the city, though? Could that not, wouldn't that be the city council that would be able to, to go ahead and, and open up the parking? Or is it something that, that the province would still have to do that since it's a provincial project? It is a provincial project, so that responsibility lies with TransLink and the province. The city has been uh, a willing partner um, with us. The city has done everything within the city's power to do. They've been great. Um, you know, they've helped in, in a number of different ways. But at this point, all roads lead to province. I, I guess the city could. I, I don't imagine this would ever happen. But I do see, because I, I do travel in that, that area quite often, and I've done this myself, people are stopping anyway and throwing the hazards on to run in and pick something up, whether it's picking up takeout or if you're running into a business. I, I guess the city could potentially turn a blind eye to that and not ticket in those scenarios. But but that too, I mean, not that that's a, a great scenario because then you're still, you're kind of encouraging people to park illegally. But it seems like there could be some things that the city could push for or could try and get to, to help ease those and help uh, help the businesses. I noticed that when I was uh, doing the for lease sign count, like there's large delivery trucks just stopping and unloading and, and doing their deliveries because they have no other option. Right. And, and uh, yeah, and I don't know, maybe if somebody has been uh, given a ticket for that, let us know. But I, I've not seen people being ticketed at this point, at least when I've been out and in that area. Uh, Neil, do you look at this? And, and when we think back, it wasn't that long ago, there was a very similar story on the Canby Corridor when, well, I guess it was several years ago, but still, uh, I'm sure the businesses along Canby will remember the building of the Canada Line. And, and should we not have learned more lessons there on the impact on businesses? You would hope we would have learned. I think the court case is still going on if it hasn't just wrapped up. So that would be 13, 14 years. Yeah, you would hope that we would have learned some lessons uh, along the way, but it doesn't seem like it. And so at this point, uh, the count keeps going up. Like you said, there were 40 for lease signs in January. There are now at least 56. So what do you think of the, for the future of businesses? And what is this corridor going to look like when this project is complete? When it's complete, it's going to be great. Like, we, there's no denying that. But we don't want it to be a wasteland when we're done. You know, we need to we need to continue to make these areas thrive and survive. Otherwise, what are we building it for? Right. Yeah, if you're building it and, and suddenly there are, are, aren't businesses left. Uh, for the ones, though, that, that are still there, what, what might be the secret then? Have you talked to your members or businesses that are able to stay open throughout this construction? They're desperate. Uh, they're innovative. They're trying to find new ways to 
you know, attract customers and get new people in. They're doing everything within their power uh, to do. Um, some of them are able to take advantage of the city's new uh, development relief tax program. Some of them cannot. Um, but at, at this point, I think they're, they're desperate they're, and they're hanging on. And the landlords are desperate for, for tenants in these, in these empty spaces. Um, you know, I, I know there's a few uh, unlicensed businesses along the way here um, because the landlords have no other options. It's like go empty and go broke um, because the mortgages need to be paid, right? The bill always comes due. All right. Well, Neil, we'll leave it there for today, but I appreciate you taking the time and joining the show today. Thank you so much for talking about this. Thank you, Jill. Well, if you have noticed that things are costing less, who am I kidding? Who's noticed that anything is costing less? However, food inflation appears to be easing in Canada. However, shoppers shouldn't expect hugely lower prices at the grocery store. Stats Canada numbers say the cost of groceries in February rose about 10.6% compared with the year before, down from an 11.4% year-over-year increase in January. But that doesn't mean the price of food is necessarily coming down. Joining us to talk more about this is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. It's not great news. It started off sounding like good news, but as you and anybody else who buys groceries knows, it doesn't feel like food prices are coming down. No, but uh, I can try to spin this in a positive way, if I may. Yes, please. <laughs> so, so when you look at, at, at today's numbers, I mean, the, the couple of things that, that came up. One, uh, the food inflation rate dropped 0.7%, which is the largest drop since April 2021. Uh, so that's, that's no small feat. And the other thing that I noticed was, that the gap between inflation and food inflation is is still at 4.5%. It's not growing. It remained the same as in January, which means that my guess is that the food inflation rate will likely continue to drop at a much faster pace than, uh, than the general inflation rate. So as we mentioned for a few months now, we are expecting the spring to be much easier and in the summer as well. But will food prices drop? No. Uh, there's a new baseline out there. Uh, when you talk to companies, they know their costs have gone up permanently. Wages have gone up. That's the nature of inflation. And so we're stuck with that legacy, unfortunately. And that's impacting the entire system. Doesn't it also, and I don't mean for this to sound overly cynical, but grocers, I imagine, will see what people will pay for things. And if somebody is willing to pay that price, where's the incentive to lower it? Um, I don't see it that way, actually. So, yes, there. I mean, I think I think food prices dropped only once in the last 30 years, and that was in 2014 when Target announced that it was coming to Canada. That's about it. And it was happening for about six months. So food prices generally go uh, rise, and 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 frankly, there's nothing wrong with food inflation, uh, but there's certainly something wrong with inflation at 10%. So it needs to come down 
as soon as possible. Nobody wants unsafe food. Nobody wants the food industry to cut corners on anything. You want safe, good food, good innovation, and, and that's how things work typically. But when it comes to inflation and predictability, as soon as you see the food inflation rate drop, it gives an opportunity to the food industry to plan and promote more food products. So food prices may not drop, but your opportunities, the number of opportunities for you to save money will likely increase with a, with a lower food inflation rate. And I, I know there was talk as well, uh, and you had been asked about this, but uh, and, and the importance of checking your receipt, which I think people are pretty good yeah. about comparing prices and looking for prices and, and, and trying to get as much bang for your buck when you're actually shopping. But can you talk a little bit more about why we should be checking our receipts? Yeah, actually, I, I'm amazed uh, by how many people I see at the grocery store not even accepting a copy of a receipt when they actually exit the grocery store. And I've always felt that these people are walking away uh, and leaving money in the store. We just surveyed uh, over 5,000 Canadians, to, and we actually found out that 67% of Canadians have actually found at least one mistake on, uh, on, on their own grocery receipt uh, at least once in the last 12 months. So it's, it's a problem. And uh, if you do find a mistake, you can just walk over to the customer service counter and it will give you that product for free if it's under $10. Hmm. So it's important for you to check the receipts. And we actually believe if you check receipts all the time, uh, every time you go to the grocery store, you can save 50 to $75 for the entire year. It's not much, but seriously, I mean, we need all the help we can get these days. And where are the mistakes taking place? So, or what, what kind of mistakes are people finding on their receipts? There are two main ones, I would say. One is, is when a food price or price is not the same in aisles than at the cashier. And, and often uh, these are daily deals, like the Enjoy Tonight deals, uh, minus 50% off here and there. And when you go to the, to the counter, you kind of forget about it, and they don't really, the code doesn't really capture that rebate. So you have to kind of tell the clerk that uh, that product is actually half price or something like that. So those are the most common uh, cases. Uh, the other um, error we see a lot uh, are double scanned, even triple scanned products that, that do happen. It does happen once in a while. And it's always by accident. Well, I can only assume it's by accident. And uh, typically people rectify the issue. Interesting. So I feel like I'm I'm in a very small group then as somebody who maybe I shouldn't even admit to doing this, but I'm the person that's staring at the register while all of my groceries are going are getting scanned through to see that each one comes up and that it comes up the price that it's supposed well, to be. You're not you're not alone. <laughs> I do the same. But here's the thing: when you uh, sometimes you actually end up with a very chatty clerk. And you, the moment is, is completely being socialized and you don't pay attention to the monitor or everything that's going on. And so errors can happen at, at the self-checkout. Uh, self you're in control uh, of everything and you're very focused on, on, on the task at hand. So you're very rarely you'll actually make a mistake. And in fact, if, if you do make a mistake, it, it will probably be in your favor. So, but at, when you're dealing with a human cashier, 
a lot of things can happen. All right. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, reminder to, to, if you didn't catch it then when it was being scanned, to make sure and check the receipt. Uh, you mentioned that the price of everything is going up, and that's part of the reason why we're going to see higher prices when it comes to groceries. So we just uh, heard as well that the, the federal minimum wage is going up and uh, provincial minimum wages as well, and in some cases going up April 1st. Not to suggest that there are a ton of minimum wage workers in the grocery industry, but do you think that is going to have an impact? Uh, it helps, of course, it helps. I I don't know exactly how many people actually earn uh, the minimum wage or how many people are going to be impacted by the increase. Uh, but I also do know that on April 1st, the carbon tax is going up to 65% a metric ton. And that impacts the cost. Again, going back to the baseline argument, that's, that's, the, that's more cost. That's more, that you and I don't see at the grocery store, but but companies have to pay that carbon tax to move things around when they spend energy. So, again, it will actually have an impact on food prices moving forward, unfortunately. And we're actually slowly marching towards a carbon tax of $170 a metric ton by 2030. So I, I don't see how that tax is not going to impact food prices. And uh, Sylvain, I know I ask you this all the time, but are we seeing the increases in certain areas? And are there still uh, some foods where we can get better deals or we can expect maybe less of an increase? There are three things that are cheaper than before the pandemic. Would you believe that? No. <laughs> so if you, love, if you love tuna, almonds and pork, those three items are cheaper than three years ago. And why is that? For a variety of reasons. Almonds, uh, certainly it's because of, of, uh, of harvest. Uh, they've actually had some really good years. Um, tuna, demand, it's all about demand. There's less demand, so they're trying to get rid of inventories. And pork, again, it's about uh, demand worldwide. Uh, China is actually producing more hogs uh, so they're buying less of our own hogs, so there's more pork in the market here. All right, tuna, almonds, and pork, uh, less expensive than before the pandemic. <laughs> Who would have thought? There you go. <gasps> exactly. All right. All right. Well, Sylvain, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. We started the show talking about the construction along much of the Broadway corridor that is for the subway project. We're now going to shift a bit, but staying with that part of the city of Vancouver, taking a look at what the future might hold when it comes to replacing some of the existing rental stock and building what is often referred to as the second downtown. Joining us to talk more about that is Rebecca Bly, a Vancouver city councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we spent so much time looking at the Broadway plan and when it was voted on by the previous council, but uh, I understand the current council is going to be looking at it again coming up a bit later this month and looking at the pace at which things are being built. And there is some concern about a, a slowing down of the buildings and some of the projects. What are you looking at as far as a council and what this project or how this project is going to go ahead? Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's an interesting policy being brought forth by staff, and of course, um, it's called the pace of change policy. And essentially, what it does in isolation is, is it, it manages 
um, the number of new developments happening in any planning area um, and, and brings in, um, um, I wouldn't say restrictions, but it brings in criteria to make sure that there is a not, it's not sort of a runaway train, right, of development and making sure that it can be tempered and managed uh, to avoid displacement, um, which, um, of course, will will happen, but we want to make sure that there's enough rental new new units for existing tenants to be able to move to through our tenant relocation plan. So it's, it's a mechanism by which to, we can um, manage the pace of change in any particular area when it comes to new development. Has there ever been or been a concern of a runaway train of development, though, especially in the city of Vancouver? Hasn't one of the biggest complaints been the slow pace of development and how long it takes to even get a permit? You are not wrong on that. Um, And so, yes, maybe unintentionally, we have our own pace of change um, uh, happening within our permitting department. So I think that's why this is um, such an important time for this council to really look into the details of which there are many. This is a pretty complex policy um, to ensure that we are striking that balance and we're not putting, again, as I mentioned, looking at a pace of change policy in isolation is one thing, but you need to look at it in the broader context. Of course, we've got tenant relocation protection, some of the most sort of sufficient, I would say, in in North America or has been touted to us at council last year as being um, the the best protections for for renters across the country. We've got, uh, of course, our own issues around permitting um, and and pace there. Um, And then, of course, um, this type of policy could really um, um, hamper any new units. And we've got a rapid transit line slated to open in the next three years, which will put further pressure on our existing rental stock if we don't find a way to enable more rental units um, it, it, across across the Broadway area plan, which um, covers 500 blocks of the city. And so if, if the idea of slowing it down or regulating that, that pace of change, if one of the issues is it's to stop displacing a whole lot of renters all at once. So this plan, though, I think people will remember when you talk about the protections for renters, this plan came with a, a promise that people who were displaced because of the project would get first right. They would be able to come back and pay a similar, if not same rent as when they left. So does it still do that, but it, it doesn't kind of, help people in the couple of years or more that they're going to be out of their current home? Yes. So the tenant protections essentially give um, people the option to come back. um, And I think the time frame is actually about five years at the same or lesser rent than what they were paying um, originally. So um, there's that uh, piece of the policy that exists. So, um, that this pace of change policy is is really underscoring that um, that the tenant relocation um, pr- protections are in place and will not be altered based on this pace of change policy. And one thing to keep in mind, and that I'm thinking about, is last year when this uh, Broadway plan, which was a, a massive planning effort and report that came to the previous council, it did not recommend a pace of change policy because of the. Um, tenant uh the the tenant protections already embedded in the plan around um we've got the rental housing um 
um, the rental housing ODP. So basically what staff had said is we don't think that it actually needs a pace of change policy. And then there were some amendments that came forward to ask staff to go and look at that. So everything is on the table right now for council to consider next week to make sure that we're striking the balance. We are in a rental housing crisis. We do have a rapid transit line um, um, as I said, slated to open within three years. This policy itself, um, if passed, uh, will undergo a review in 2026. You know, so I think there are just some concerns that the level of uncertainty that this creates for um, for um, new development to even occur will will mean that we've got a rapid transit line without a ton of new rental capacity around it. So we just got to be able to look at this and make sure that we're striking that balance. And of course, protecting renters is a very important piece of the work that this council has to do, while also ensuring that we can bring that vacancy rate up above um, to a healthy range, which is three to five percent. And currently it sits at about um, 0.5, 0.8% in this area. So again, striking that balance is a really critical part of this process. Uh, but so what changed though, if, if the pace of change wasn't required or, or it didn't, wasn't part of it, wasn't deemed necessary when this plan passed, what changed that brought it back to council now? So there was an amendment that was initially moved by Councillor Pete Fry to um, implement a pace of change policy that would basically restrict any new development over five years to social housing um, and and another certain very small pockets, which um, I would say uh, around uh, stations, which are largely underway. So um, there was essentially in that amendment, it was it was fairly prescriptive uh, in nature, and it and it was going straight to implementation. And so, what uh, based on staff feedback, I moved a, an amendment to strike that and and say, well, let's look at a pace of change policy, open ended. Let's not be too prescriptive now. And of course, a lot has changed, right, in the uh, in the conditions around development. Uh, land costs, of course, continue to escalate. Construction costs. Now we have the rate of inflation um, that are all um, really, really hampering um, the viability, the financial viability of these uh, projects. To even get that construction financing in the first place. So, again, that's how we got here. Is a couple of amendments happened, and now. Staff have, of course, followed that direction from council and have brought something back, um, again, to reiterate that they didn't initially bring forward in the first place. So we really need to take sort of a 30,000 foot view on this one and look and see what is the best, what's in the best interest of striking that balance for the city, too, uh, that is grappling with a housing crisis and has uh, a lot of renters that live within this existing area. Right, because, and I get that, and and the impact on renters, but it also, it it does seem like a bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, we know that more housing is needed. We keep hearing about this dire need for more housing, and then council's looking at a policy that could actually restrict it to five projects a year. Exactly, yeah. So that is, again, that I mean, it is in those particular areas, of course, um, there is a criteria. Part of the amendment um, was also to ask staff to come back to establish a criteria by which we could um, measure the merit of a project. So, you know, affordability of units, uh, number of units, um, uh, public benefits and amenities delivered on any given project. Is it is this project application coming forward on a site that doesn't have any displacement? I think what we're really hearing from the development community and what the city needs is, is a really um, um, 
a policy that can respond to changing conditions, which is not necessarily um, something that can often be harmonized through policy that can be quite restrictive. It, it really is looking at the fact that um, if an application comes in and it does not have that displacement and we can deliver a lot of units, they should potentially be moved up the queue um, based on that merit. So part of what's in this report is staff coming forward with a criteria. I personally think there's still work to do there to balance what are all of the different um, um, metrics that we want to see that go beyond just affordability, but also public benefit delivery, as I mentioned, and and, and no displacement, ideally, uh, rather than this first-in, first-out uh, queue that we often find um, in our application process. And we do hear from builders that it's too arbitrary, it, it's too, it's too, um, it's not nimble enough, right? It's not flexible enough based on the uh, urgent need that we have to deliver housing. Right, because like you said too, if a project comes in without displacement and it's bringing in housing, imagine saying, no, we can't approve this because we've already approved five other projects this year. Precisely. That is exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Councillor, just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you as well, we started the show talking uh, with the Mount Pleasant uh, Business Improvement Association. They have now counted 56 uh, lease signs at businesses between Arbutus and Maine on Broadway. Uh, businesses are asking the province for help in dealing with uh, trying to keep the doors open with the construction that's ongoing. Is there anything the council can do to help these businesses? Yeah, no, I appreciate you raising it. It's something that um, myself and, and others, Council Dominato, have been working very closely with businesses. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I, I really think we're at the point where the city really has done everything in, in our power. Our city staff are consistently leaning into this issue. Um, um, and we need to get the support of um, the province. And it's not necessarily, it's not sort of one thing um, that could help. For example, right now there is a um, request to consider opening up more parking in parts of Broadway that are not dealing with such intense instruction, uh, construction. So we see that around, um, you know, parts just west of Fur. We see that parts, you know, uh, east of Manitoba. Like there are pockets, two blocks here and there. Uh, and businesses are saying that that could make the difference of 15 to 20 percent of more customers being able to um, to, to to come into these businesses. And, and um, so, there, it, again, it's it's about the city of Vancouver partnering with the provinces. We do, and we appreciate that, um, uh, and the Broadway subway subway project. Uh, and transit and translink for that matter to really get around the table again and get, say, okay, here's where we're at. This is how far we've gotten. What could we be doing right now to alleviate some of the uh, challenges that our businesses are facing? Nobody's arguing with the fact that in the long term, the Broadway subway, the subway extension is, is a good thing for residents. It's a good thing for businesses. We just need to be able to um, be responding to the pressures um, that are happening day to day right now. And there's a lot on the line for these businesses, a lot on the line. So we've got to try everything we can to make life easier for them to get through to the other end of this uh, project here. All right, Councillor Bly, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Well, a Vancouver parent has filed a class action lawsuit. It's in B.C. Supreme Court, and it is against the makers of Fortnite, alleging that the popular video game is designed to be as addictive as possible for kids. The plaintiff says her son has developed an adverse dependence on the game, and the lawsuit alleges that the game includes intentional design elements that encourage players to repeatedly return, such as frequent updates and rewards for completing challenges. It goes on to argue that the creator of Fortnite, Epic Games, enriches itself through in-game purchases made with real money. The Epic Games or Epic Games says the claims in the lawsuit do not reflect how the game operates and that perhaps this is a, a situation where the parental control options have been ignored. None of the allegations has been proven in court, but this is again a class action lawsuit. Well, let's check in now with Julie Romanofsky, founder and executive director of Misbehavior Parenting Coach and Consultant Services. Julie, thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. What was your thought or your reaction when you heard about this lawsuit? Uh, probably an eye roll was first, <laughs> an eye roll, and then and then a bit of curiosity. I think um, I can see both sides of the story, absolutely. But immediately, I would say it's up to every individual parent to first and foremost guide, protect their child physically and emotionally. And so that would be where I would want to ask more questions or find out more information. How old is this child? How long are they playing on this game for? How did this dependency actually take place? So um, I can see that there's definitely responsibility on the, on the side of the video game makers, um, making sure that they have options for different levels of players, meaning more immature versus mature. Um, but ultimately, I think the responsibility lies uh, in the parent. And even looking at some of the response from Epic Games, which is the maker, the creator of Fortnite, and it really explains that there are measures that parents mm-hmm. or guardians can take, that they can make accounts where any child, if you're under the age of 13 and playing it, you actually have to provide a parent's email address to access certain features of the game, and that there are things that can be done if you're a parent and you're concerned that your child is going to perhaps get too much into this game. Yes, I I agree with that. And I like that those options are out there. Uh, I myself don't know what those options are. I I know what the game Fortnite's about, but not in that great detail. Um, But having options is definitely a step in the right direction. However, it's still with those options. You still have to look at that child and, and see, are they emotionally able to handle this, mentally able to handle this. I know for my son, he's 10, and uh, and he has played Fortnite, and he, of course he loves it. We don't have the game at home. He rarely does play it when he does, but I thought, no way. He is not emotionally ready. He's physically, he gets it. He knows where to go and how to get the, the, the scores or whatever it is, uh, but emotionally, he's not ready for that, and he's a well-regulated kid. So for me, that's that entire game is meant for a more mature audience. 
I'm not putting an age on it, but a, a maturity, emotional maturity. So, you know, there's a difference between, for example, a racing game or even those soccer games compared to something like Fortnite. So, I mean, there's a lot of variables, but ultimately it depends on uh, the child and what they're capable of uh, emotionally handling and for how long. Are we talking once in a while or is this like hours every day? Right. And Exactly. And I'm curious your thoughts, a game like Fortnite, and I will fully admit I have not played Fortnite, (laughs) but I know a lot of kids that play this game. And and like you said, they love it. And you understand why they love playing this game. But is there a concern with kids and perhaps at the younger ages playing a game that that does give rewards for completing challenges? You have to make all of these updates. It's really based on on customizing and, and really working to those rewards? Well, that's another great question because the entire society is based on the reward and punishment system. So (laughs) where do you draw the line? Parents do it at home with their kids for their behavior. Uh, Teachers and and other educational faculty do that for their students. Uh, The justice system, everything's about rewards these days. Um, I don't think we need rewards in order to achieve Uh, but it is the most common out there. So is it wrong? Is it right? Well, (laughs) we'd have to change everything. Uh, There is a component, though, of the dopamine hits we get when we do get that reward or that big prize or whatever it is in any game that we play. And that is definitely, I wouldn't say addictive, but we sure want more of it. Who doesn't want to have an extra dose of dopamine these days? (laughs) True. Um, (laughs) So there's that component, too, uh, which gets really tricky. But again, uh, within reason um, and limited amounts of that exposure uh, is something that we have to continuously uh, consider. And what about the cash option? So this is a game that you can customize the options, you can purchase the in-game currency, but that's something you do with real cash. I think in this case, or if not in this case, there have been other cases against this company uh, with kids, I guess, who somehow have been able to purchase the in-game currency without their parents knowing. What about that Mm. idea of, of a child having that kind of power? Uh, see, I would put the, the controls around that, those parental controls. I'm assuming they have that for that option. I mean, I don't know. But I, if I was a parent and knew my child would have the ability to use cash probably associated to my card, uh, I'd be very concerned. And no, I don't think that's appropriate. However, maybe there is a card that a child's been given from their parents that says, hey, free reign, go for it. Uh, we don't know. But I don't think it's appropriate. And there are many games and apps out there that you can, within that, you know, I think of those casino gambling games. You can do that with sort of just points and fake money, if you will. And then, of course, there's the real money you can make. So that's something we have to use our discretion around. I think if you were to talk to another population of uh, adult, mature adult people, then they might like that. They might like having the ability to have that money um, and earning money component. But for a child, even teens, I'd be very, very concerned about that and giving them sort of full reign um, to be able to purchase.
Right. And one of the other issues that's been raised, not specifically in this lawsuit, but in other concerns that have been raised against the company, was that the default settings in this game, they allow for text and voice communications for all users. And there were cases of children, of teenagers being threatened, of being harassed, of being bullied on that platform. Again, I I mean, I I know it comes down to parents needing to know what their kids Mm -hmm. are doing and needing to know the controls, but the fact that it, that that's the default setting and that kids were, were being subjected to this does seem a bit mm-hmm. concerning. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I would go to the, the game creators and say, hey, let's err on the side of extreme caution because the majority of children are playing this game. Like you have a huge population of children. So that would be ideal. And it would it would be make more sense to me for an adult to then go outside of those default settings and say, no, I do want to have this, this, and this versus the child saying, well, I better check my default settings. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of comes with the maturity component. But um, again, yes, a parent's going to have to oversee that when they set it up. Not all parents are present for that, nor do they fully understand what that means. I would hope that the game creators of any game that they know children are taking part in, including social media, would have the the more safety default settings or err on that side of safety. Do you think it sets a dangerous precedent, though? And again, this class action suit, it still needs approval from the court. None of these allegations have been proven. Mm -hmm. But if it is to go ahead, does it set a bit of a dangerous precedent in that parents are putting all of that on, on video game creators to keep their kids safe? I don't think it is going to go anywhere. I really don't because of that reason. It, to me, it's, it's similar to cigarettes. Uh, remember, on the, the packages were just packages, and now they have the warning, you could get cancer, you could get this, and all those sort of scary warnings um, because they probably, I, I'm assuming, were sued. Uh, so could games put out a warning and, and uh, sign waivers and all of this to protect themselves? Possibly. Uh, but I don't think it's going to go through because otherwise, yes, every parent will start suing and uh, doing all kinds of things because this game screwed up their kid, taking the onus and responsibility off the parent. The parent is the first and foremost. And so that's why if that does happen, that that lawsuit does go through and continues to and sets this precedent, that's very scary. I, I oof, yeah, that wouldn't be good. All right. Well, we will see what happens next with it. Julie, thank you so much for joining the show and for talking about this today. Thanks, Joe. It was my pleasure.